Hello, welcome to the Body, Mind, Spirit podcast, a podcast for the Idea Crucible. Hey, if you don't yet know about the Idea Crucible, come check us out online at www.theideacrucible.com. We have a lot of great resources for therapists that work with the Body, Mind, Spirit. But we're also putting up more articles, blogs, and podcasts, just like this one, for the public who have an interest in body, mind, spirit integration. Today, we're talking with Irit Schaefer, a physical therapist in the great city of San Francisco, and also the author of the new book called Good Blood, A Journey of Healing. Irit and I met in a manual therapy course we attended together as students, and although we didn't actually work on each other in that particular class, we hit it off really well. And as she talked about her new book and its topic, I had to get a copy, read it, and ask her to join us. I will briefly say that I particularly enjoyed the book Good Blood in that it is a book of community, emergent strength, and healing. And the stories interwoven in this narrative come from many, many people. So let's get to the interview. Onward. Irit, welcome. So glad to have you join us today. Thank you so much. I'm honored to be here. Just want to begin by saying I really enjoyed reading your book quite a bit. Oh, I'm so grateful. Thank you. And I guess probably a great place to get us started is just the question is, what is good blood? Would you explain that to us? Oh, absolutely. Well, the way the title came about was from a childhood story that shaped my life. Both my parents survived the Holocaust, but both in a very different way. And my father was in a Hungarian forced labor camp and he escaped and he escaped to the Russian front. But when he escaped, he got shot. So the Hungarians and the Germans were allies and the Russians were fighting them. And when he got shot, he had six bullets put into him. And miraculously, he got saved. And he had the bullets taken out without any medicine and he didn't scream. And he developed a gangrene arm and he healed. So from the time I was five, my father would share these stories and share this story of how he healed. And I would always ask him, Dad, how did you heal? And he used to say he had good blood. And I used to ask him if I had good blood. He used to laugh. But the way he shared the story was like he was Superman. And when he wasn't sharing the story, he was like Clark Kent. And for me, he shared stories in a way that a five-year-old and a six-year-old could hear it because there was so much wisdom and light in it. And he left out the pieces that would make it feel dark for me. So I was constantly saying, Dad, tell me again, sharing the different stories. So good blood goes two continents and four generations of what is good blood. What are the qualities that we can each uh, tap into to allow us to access our own version of good blood? And in every chapter, there's a different voice of wisdom and knowing inspiring us about healing, hope and possibility. And it's through rich storytelling. So everybody will get whatever they need in a different way. So that's what good blood is. <laughs> I, I like this idea that he told it to you in a way that a five or six year old could understand it. And you kind of make that connection between Superman and Clark Kent. Yeah, because he was my superhero. He would do these things that were like, I mean, his stories just created this wonderment and curiosity about how we heal. It just seemed so impossible to me. So I was always like wondering, how is this possible? And it, because it was so impossible to me and it happened, he became like Superman. And I kind of liked Superman as a kid. But when he was not telling the stories, he was just you know, another person, Clark Kent. So that's why it was like he was my superhero. Yeah. And he always shared the stories as if, like, you know, when you, as kids, when we watch cartoons and different stories, it's like we enjoy watching it because it empowers us, you know, and we love the superheroes. 
So he turned out to be one of my superheroes. And I thought, I'm the only one in the class, you know, when I was going to grade school or whatever, that had that kind of story and that kind of dad who, who like healed from the impossible that way. <laughs> nice. And it was like the biggest piece for me was how could he have the bullets taken out without medicine and not scream? And he used to say, well, they would have taken him out of this misery if he screamed. That's what he used to say. But that curiosity about how's that possible what does the brain do what do we do to allow that so that curiosity was a seed that was planted that created that like burning desire to know more about the resiliency of the human spirit and body and how we how we actually heal how has that shaped you as you've gotten older beyond the five and six year old understanding that's a great question as a healer i first became a high school physical education teacher and coach and I taught biology for a couple of years in the high school system in Montreal and then that burning desire to learn more about healing led me back to school to get my master's of science in physical therapy from the University of Southern California in Los Angeles. Um, so as a healer what it did was it created this wonderment and curiosity that defied any limitations. It brought me to a place where there was always a possibility and so even in physical therapy school, when people told me something, it isn't possible, I go, you, you don't understand. It like science is beyond what we're learning. And when I was a high school phys ed teacher, which is probably what motivated me to actually go into the physical therapy piece, I was the ski club supervisor in Montreal in the school I was at. And I decided to show off with these like 16 year old hot dog skiers and in Quebec, when you go skiing, it's a lot of ice. It's not, you know, the best conditions. Um, but showing off is never a good opportunity or, or that competitiveness in me. And I ended up being like face down in the snow, embarrassed as could be with like both hands to my side, the legs to my other side, and I needed help to get up. But I torqued my knee and it turned out I had a torn meniscus and I was going to have surgery because that's what the doctor said. The doctor said that the, the there's no blood flow to the meniscus, so you can't do it without surgery. But I had tried, you know, physical therapy uh, treatment for a long time and it didn't help. And so that's when the doctor said, you know, you need surgery. And then I read up on it and I said, you know, at the time it was before the uh, arthroscopic surgery, it was like six months before. And so they had a big incision and I read that it was like going to be, you lose your shock absorber, you're going to lose your, you know, you're going to have pain older, you're going to have arthritis, you're going to have this and that. And then my dad's story went, wait a minute, if my dad could heal from all this, what's a little meniscus? So I didn't know otherwise. I didn't have any limitations and that upbringing and and then it's like something inside of me switched and the next day I walked like you know 10 feet without pain which was the first time that happened and I called my doctor and I said I'm gonna cancel my surgery and he was surprised because he thought there's no way I could heal but that knowing and that background you know I made a complete recovery and I, I did not need the surgery but I was so I was so liking the whole process of the, you know, physical therapy healing journey that it enabled me later on to actually go into physical therapy. <laughs> so, so my background <laughs> taught a lot and it's like I didn't know the limitations. Sometimes getting my master of science, sometimes I, I, it's actually a disadvantage because you learn all these things that aren't possible and then fear takes over. And as soon as fear takes over, we can't tap in to the qualities that allow us to heal if it is the predominant factor you know that knowing has to outweigh any little fear that there is so you know as a healer i've learned to let go of 
all what I used to think, what, what I was taught actually, to go beyond that. Because healing goes beyond what we know. It goes into that space that's beyond. And, you know, as through the book, fear uh, and worry are something I was born into as well, besides you know, the healing part and the wisdom part. So I've been learning to bring light and heal that area so I can incorporate it, not just, you know, when I'm working or when I'm writing, when I'm writing, I'm in that same space that's beyond our thoughts where I can tap into that wisdom, that God space, that flow, that expansiveness. Wow, a lot of really wonderful nuggets in, in what you just said. Could you, I mean, I definitely want to hear you talk more about the potential of healing a little bit later and stuff like that. But before we go there, could you talk a little bit more about how you see fear as limiting the healing possibility? How does that work? What are the dynamics of fear? How does that stifle healing? That's a great question. So one of the things that I've learned is that we all have different gifts and we all come in the world with different genetic makeup and we have certain traits. So if, you know, a parent is an athlete, there's a good chance the uh, offspring's an athlete. If the parent is a fantastic physicist, chances are those gifts get through as well. But it's the same thing with emotions. So to me, I was born into a lot of fear because of the background of my parents and my grandparents and my lineage. And so I, through injury, I've had a lot of injuries and through injury, I've learned a lot about fear. And because I was such an athlete as well, I was really in touch with my body. And one of the things that I noticed today, and I probably was not as conscious of it before, but as soon as I go into fear, my body contracts. As soon as my body contracts, it doesn't allow for healing. It blocks it and it intensifies the pain or intensifies anything else. So fear is a good thing to stop us, but when we're in fear and we act, it becomes really hard. So for healing, if we're afraid we're not gonna heal or we forget all the different qualities to allow us to stay in fear, it's very hard for the body to overcome and tap into that space where healing occurs. So, you know, they've done studies on mindfulness and on meditation and that space where you're so relaxed that allows, you know, that flow and that healing. And it's also a vibration. So when we're in fear, what happens is we go into what I call a lower vibration of light and we can't tap into the same healing powers we can if we're not. So one time I just, just as a fun experiment, an acupuncturist I knew, I asked, I, like I was thinking different thoughts and I was asking him to read the pulses. And every time I thought a thought that was fearful, the pulses shifted. Every time there was expansiveness, it changed. So if the pulses change as well, it's like, what is our body doing? There's so many things going on in our body when we're contracted whether it's, or expansive. So if somebody made it uh, close their fist and held it like that all day, it would be very hard for the body to heal. So I'm, I'm using the example of a closed fist, but it's really the body. But if we had our hands open, it's a lot easier to receive. That's a great analogy with the hand open or closed. I really understand and I'm hearing what you're saying on, on how fear kind of contracts the body. You said one thing just a moment ago that when somebody is in fear and then they try to act from that fear. Mm-hmm. Uh, I didn't quite follow what you said, but something where it was almost like a sense that fear and action are, incom are, are incompatible with each other. Okay, that's a really good point. Like, let's say there's a fire. You're not going to go into the fire. Fear is going to stop you from going into the fire. So fear can stop us from acting. 
But if we're in fear when we act, chances are we can't tap into that wisdom that we need. So one of the interesting characteristics of so many of my family members is the word fear. So I used to ask my dad, like, weren't you afraid you were going to die? And he said he didn't focus on that. He let go of all attachment. He focused on what he could do. And my mom the same. So they didn't act from fear and they could tap into a wisdom that was beyond any darkness there. And they could connect to that light. So when we're in fear, it's very hard for us to connect to that space that allows healing. And unless that light is much stronger than the fear. So when the fear is predominant, for me, it usually goes to, I can't believe I did that. And it's usually when I'm in fear and worry that I end up doing something that I go, I can't believe I did that. (laughs) (laughs) Sure. I'm reminded of one of the one of the stories, one of the quotations in your book. Uh, It was when your dad was in the concentration camp. And I remember you mentioned or you wrote that your dad could tell who was going to die next because they had given up. Correct. And, you know, it's interesting when I was a high school teacher there was a student who start, had a severe asthma attack. And I didn't know at the time that her mom had said, if you run more than 10 minutes, you could die. And when I looked at that person, it was my father's words actually came to my head. And all I could focus on was calming everyone down. So it's like I was tapping into a wisdom. I was not in fear. But that's like one of the qualities when they have lost all purpose and possibility and light. My father would just know even if they weren't the sickest, that they would die. But what they did is they lost all hope. They lost all understanding of a bigger picture and purpose. And they lost that light, what I call that light, that vibration that allows that flicker of a new possibility to occur. So they let the darkness be their only mode. And yet my father and my mom and and some of the other relatives that I interviewed, the thing that they all had in common was despite all the darkness around them, they always had a symbol of connection, a light, a possibility that was way beyond that. And so they focused on that, not on the fear. Right. Yeah. And and that's a point that uh, is mentioned throughout the stories of the book. I've been reflecting that one of the really strong elements of your book, too, is just the element of community community and support and people supporting each other and people coming together. And there are plenty of stories where your parents, you know, beyond not losing their own hope and focusing on what they could, focusing on the small things that they could control, but there are an awful lot of stories of them reaching out and trying to support their fellow their fellow humans doing that too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's true. It's like my father would say he focused on what he could do, not what he couldn't. So he always tried to do something positive. And what was interesting is one of the things that he once shared with me was there's always a positive in everything. And what and I said, how's that possible? And he said, because you always have to look for it. It's like it's like when you plant a seed, you have to keep watering it. And there's always something. And he said, the consequences, it could occur in 100 years. But if you focus on it, there's always something positive. They focused on how they could help others. They focused beyond themselves. They they didn't focus on their fear and worry, but they just focused on what is. And for my father, because of certain experiences he had, he was able to transcend it. My mom had severe PTSD, but she she completely made a 360. So they were two role models of possibility. And it guided me in my two continent, four generation journey. I was swimming with the dolphins, doing whatever. It, it was, um, it's always there reminding me. Uh, for sure. 
Now, <clears throat> some of those things could almost sound like a new age platitude, you know, something that somebody could say. But it takes on a whole different meaning when you realize that the person saying it is someone who lived through the Holocaust. Right. And, you know, it, it's like I'm like once some, somebody once asked me, why, like, how come you have fear? You're, you know, like, why are you such a wimp? And I've had so many years of chronic pain teaching me the other because we're working on healing that. It's not so simple. Just because we know this doesn't mean we go there. A lot of times, and, and that's like the difference between, I think, new age and what the truth is. It's like. I've had to deal with this issue forever because that's part of what I came in, you know, what I'm in the world to heal. And if it were black and white, we'd all do it. If it was so black and white, why would I focus on the worry instead of the light, even though I know all this? So there's so many pieces in us that we want to heal, but the key is to become aware. So if I go into fear or worry or whatever, at least now I'm aware of it and I stop like it, it stops everything. And, and we all have that, whether it's fear or worry or something else. We all have something. And it's that shade of gray that's so way beyond like all these steps. That's why, you know, all these stories to me were so empowering because they're stories. Nobody was telling anybody what they should or shouldn't do. And they were just sharing their truth. And, you know, whether it be the students when I was teaching or the patients that I've had as a healer or, you know, all the different people that came into my life to be a teacher on some level. So it's so down to earth, you know. And interestingly enough, I resisted a lot of this because I used to think when I would look at a lot of these like classes and whatever, I think it was all new age huff puff like craziness. Mm -hmm. So here I was resisting all this because it seems so out of whack. But I, I, I think that humanness and like relating it to each one of us has a journey. And if it were easy, we'd all be doing it. But there's so many levels and we're wanting to be able to have the awareness and the tools to tap into that empowerment within us. And that's a daily practice. Mm -hmm. But we have to become aware of what it is, because how can we shift anything if we're in blame and we're reacting to that rather than to being caused and taking some responsibility for how can we do it differently? What was it in me that created that, you know, space that allowed whatever? Yeah, and that becomes a real complex conversation, too, because, you know, as you mentioned, it's like, all right, there's our genetics, there's our background, there's our family, mm -hmm. all these things coming together. Mm -hmm. I, I remember at the end of the book, you actually kind of make that point and you made a real interesting point. That in your dad's case, he went through such trauma that it's almost like the role of the trauma provided him a level of comparison that other people couldn't have that enabled him to access the possibilities that those of us without that level of trauma may not have had. Well, the level of exactly the level of trauma that he had forced him to access that because without it, he wouldn't have survived. But interestingly enough, my father had a dream when he got shot, but he never shared the dream. And only when I went to Europe and was talking to my relatives, I found out that the dream, what the dream was. And in that dream, he'd gone to this amazing place of light where the birds, the flowers, everything was like infinitely bright and beautiful and calm and peaceful beyond anything he'd experienced. And it went infinitely. And his sister who had, who had moved to Aruba before the war, she kept calling him back saying we need you come back and so he did and he woke up in a pool of blood and he wasn't very happy about leaving that space 
But after the war, he shared it. And then everybody said, crazy Zoli, look what the war did to him. So he never shared it with me or my sister, because I probably would have said the same thing because I didn't have that knowledge. But that whole concept of a lot of times we know things that other people are not aware of. And crazy Zoli, look what the war did to him. But he knew they didn't understand. So he used to say, you know, one day you'll understand. And a lot of times I went, you know, my I, I knew better than my dad, of course. But that goes a lot with what's going on today, too. It's like growing up, I could see something somebody else didn't. But I didn't realize that. I saw beyond what they saw, what I thought was, what's wrong with me? How come I'm not in the same world as them? So I would shut down. Whereas my dad just had this knowing and understanding and acceptance that people just didn't understand a lot of things. But he connected to something and he had transcended because he'd been in a place that few of us could ever survive that allowed him that, which is what you were saying. So I believe that too. And my mom as well in a different way. You've talked quite a bit about how your dad approached it, and uh, and you mentioned that your mom had some PTSD, and then that turned around at the end. What lessons would you say that you learned from how your mom worked with her history? Okay, that's a really important piece. So it was pretty traumatic for me growing up with my mom because she had a lot of PTSD, but I took everything personally, and so she never wanted to talk about it. There was only three things I knew, and one was the gold chain, which is on the cover of the book, which I'll explain in a little bit if we have time. Of course. What I realized as I worked on myself more and released stuff, that things weren't personal. So a great example would be like when I used to visit her in Montreal, and this was when I moved to California, and then I'd come visit. Whenever I parked the car, she like would be at the window looking, waiting for me. And she'd say, you know, you should have parked on the left-hand side of the street. And growing up, that's just a metaphor. I was always like taking a personally thinking that I didn't do it right. And then if I parked on the right-hand side of the street, she'd say, you should have parked on the left. And there came a point where I realized she's just worried. And no matter where I park, she's going to share that because she just cares but she worries and it's not personal my father transcended from his i i believe possibly from the near-death experience that he had which nobody knew about at the time so he called it a dream and everybody thought he was crazy because he was in the wrong time frame but he knew and he never let go of knowing but when moody came in the 60s he wasn't even aware that there were so many people who were sharing similar stories and these people never lost connection. Whereas with my mom, when I stopped taking things personally, I could start seeing her amazing resilience and resourcefulness and gifts that I couldn't because prior to that, it's like no matter what I did, I didn't feel you know validated, but it was because she worried. So she, it wasn't personal, but I took it personally. And when I learned to just see the gifts as they were, it changed everything. And my mom never had anybody to you know, share things with but when she could actually, when she got reparations from the Germans and her grandkids would start asking her questions, it actually helped release, you know, some of the floodgates. But she never talked about it, about her experience, except for the gold chain. And I didn't know very much about that then. But when I started researching for the book, I actually, she wouldn't talk to me either. And then I finally got her to succumb because I used the power she used on me all my life, guilt. <laughs> like, what will your grandkids say? If you're the only one in your great grandkids who she just loved unconditionally and vice versa. And that motivated her. Once she started to speak, it was like the floodgates opened and I was the one who was having a hard time. What I realized also was that she too maintained a light. And it was, you know, the symbol of the gold chain that was in her shoe in the war allowed her to stay connected. 
So she became my teacher of focusing on what we can do rather than what we couldn't. So one of the things that my mom was a master at, and I saw it in the last four years when she got sick, was she focused on what she could do, not what she couldn't. She exhibited the amazing qualities of good blood as well and was my teacher. So whenever, when she got sick, what and I went to Montreal for three months, so she was very vibrant. She was 92, living by herself, didn't want, you know, had her community, didn't want to move in with uh, me in California or my sister in Pennsylvania because she was very happy in her community. But when I visited her and whenever I worried, she'd go like, what's wrong with you? Well, why, why aren't you here? But what she was really saying is, I don't want you to worry because every time I worried, she picked up on it. She wanted my light of what we could do, not what we couldn't. And I realized then that's how she healed. And she spent her whole life a lot of times focusing on what she could do rather than what she couldn't, which was the quality that allows people to heal. Because if we worry about what we can't do, we close our fist and we focus on closed fist and contraction rather than the open fist of possibility. Really, does that help? It does. And I'm, I'm really just admiring and appreciating at the moment how much you're kind of role modeling exactly what you're talking about. You know, just that as long as you were taking it personal, <laughs> your mom's right. worry that you were mm-hmm. contracted and not able to heal, you know, at, least mm-hmm. in that, in, at least in that particular relationship. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But that once you're able to shift out of that and open up, look at it in a different way, then you're able to see your mom in a new way, view that relationship in a new way, and then start to kind of identify and recognize the strengths and the resiliences that she did have. Exactly. And that, you know, I was very fortunate that she lived a long life so that I could experience that. But it also required me shifting out. And the big piece for me that really helped me was learning to accept my mom for who she was and my family members for who they were and not wanting them to get me or not wanting them to understand how I do things or wanting them to do it better because that would help them in my eyes. And when I learned to accept them for who they were, because then I would have been doing the same thing of I want to do it my way and they can't accept me for who I am. I'm doing the same thing to them when I'm telling them to do it differently. <laughs> and I shifted that. It opened up the door for me to be able to listen better and them to respond better. <laughs> you changed the dance. Yes. <laughs> I changed the dance. Somebody had to. My old dance was not working. And it was contracting me. So what happens is when I want to help someone and they don't want help, I contract. I close my fist. Energetically, that's what happens to us. Yeah. I'm sure I'm sure there is nobody else in the world that can identify with that particular struggle <laughs> with their parents. Exactly. You know, and it's funny because it's like I laugh at myself a lot because I realize how I, uh, you know, how stuck I get. And I'm learning now to be more gentle with myself because I beat myself up. I'm really, I've been really good my whole life beating myself up when things didn't go, you know, or, or whatever. And learning that it's so important to be gentle with ourselves because otherwise we're closing our fist and not allowing healing inside. So we're gentle with others and learning to be gentle with ourselves, which is a hard one. It's, it's been a hard one for me and I've been working on it a long time, releasing those blocks. So does that make sense? Yeah, here, here. Yeah. 
So let's so talk. Uh, let's talk about the gold chain. So just for okay. the listener, you know, we the cover mm-hmm. of the book says "Good Blood: A Journey of Healing," and the cover kind of has two halves in it. The top half mm-hmm. is a picture of a sunburst, and then on mm-hmm. the bottom there is a gold chain on the book. And you've mentioned mm-hmm. that. Could you tell us a bit about the gold yeah. chain? The gold chain was my mom's most important possession, and she wouldn't trade it for any millions of dollars in the world, is what she would say. And even towards her end of her life, she says, you can do what you want with it after. But she her father gave it to her on the day of that they went into hiding and they put it in her shoe. They hid it in her shoe and it was with them in the woods. It was with them with a family, a Christian family who hid them. And it was with her when they got captured. It was in three concentration camps, including the Bergen Belsen death camp. And on the day of liberation, she took the chain off and kept it on through her journey to Israel through Canada, and it was always with her, and it was her most important possession. But what was interesting is when I was in Montreal at a book fair there, there was two people who read the book who had survived the Holocaust, including one who survived the same camp as my mom, and they both shared how impossible it was that the shoe wasn't taken because they took everything from you. And the gold chain is what was in her shoe, which she used it as a pillow on the hard floor. But it was always a reminder of that light, of that expansiveness, of that God space of possibility, of her connection. And that's what the whole theme of the book is from different levels, whether it be, you know, wherever we went. The theme is the light, the expansiveness, the beyond our thought place where magic and endless possibilities occur. So the miracle to them in the whole book was how the gold chain didn't get taken because they took everything from them. And so it's representative of a light. And the person who wrote the foreword to the book, Arjia Rinpoche, who was uh, the liaison between the Chinese government and the Tibetan community, and he survived decades, a decade of the labor camps through Mao Zedong. And he, too, was with the light, you know, always focused on the light. And his foreword is such an amazing blessing and words of wisdom. But the book is way bigger than just it's about healing. It's about healing on all levels. It's about different stories it's it's about a great example is the dolphin story where i ended up swimming with the dolphins of the wild and it was a magical and mystical experience because they knew i needed healing but it's all about the light and the and the dolphins show the magic of the light and all the different characters in the book who are the voices of wisdom show us light but from a different perspective and they show us the qualities of good blood that we can tap into and access and it's you know there's it's so many things for different people nice but that chain was my mom's connection to hope and possibility to focusing on what is rather than what isn't so despite all the darkness she focused on what is she focused on that light she focused on that possibility she focused on the good where's the gold chain now well the gold chain is waiting to go to some museum but we haven't we're waiting for the different people to contact us back so it's sort of in my possession at the moment, and I'm. It's not anything I'll wear because <laughs> it's too. It's it's the 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 story of it is is the history of it is beyond something I should be wearing. It belongs in a bigger place. It belongs in a museum, right on. and it has a lot of history. So gold just represented, just like good blood. Yeah, there's it's uh, it's all about healing on so many different levels. What a wonderful start. Forgive the abrupt ending just now, but that was a good place to conclude part one of the interview with Arit about her book, Good Blood. 
In part two of the interview, we'll dive a bit more into her thoughts on therapy and healing, both from her family and from her training as a physical therapist and body worker. Hope you enjoyed part one. Please be sure and join us for part two soon. And while you're at it, listen to some of her other episodes too. Thanks for listening.